Hey there, this is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Glenn Weldon. NPR's Rachel Martin hosts a series called Enlighten Me that airs on All Things Considered Sundays. She sits down with a wide variety of folks who share some of the milestones they've happened across along their own spiritual journeys. These conversations go deep, as you might imagine, and tackle some of the most fundamental existential questions of all. A recent example is this thoughtful and compelling and really quietly powerful interview with poet Hanif Abdurraqib. Rachel went into this conversation having read his latest book, A Little Devil in America, in which he writes about the centrality of music in his life and spiritual practice, and she thought they were going to talk about that. The conversation they ended up having, though, was different. And a heads up to listeners, Rachel and Hanif ended up talking a lot about grief and about suicide. If you need to talk with someone about those issues or others, call 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Hotline. Here's their conversation. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. How would you define your spiritual identity, if you have one? I feel like at this point in my life, I was, so I was raised Muslim. Mm-hmm. And at this point in my life, I am someone who at the very least feels required to believe in the presence of an afterlife. Because my spiritual identity is by now so inextricably linked to loss and the amount of people I've lost, uh, people I love a great deal. And I think one thing that propels me forward is believing that there is a place beyond this where we might commune again. But I also don't necessarily believe in the rigidity of an afterlife as it's presented in text, in biblical text or or any religious text. Um, I don't believe one has to to earn their way into the potential to see the people they love again through a set of a set of good deeds or a set of good works. I, I know, you know, I'm not motivated to do the things I do that some might consider good because I'm um, afraid of what my eternal life would look like. Hmm. <laughs> but but I do think that my spiritual relationship is almost entirely defined by. Um, by my understanding of loss. Can you tell me about some of the people that you lost? I know you lost your mom when you were pretty young. Yeah, I lost my mom when I was uh, 12, going on 13. Huh. And, you know, a lot of friends uh, died by suicide or drug overdoses. Or I think broadly, the way I think about it is they decided the world was not tenable for them. You know, because I think that's, for me, at least in my mind, as someone who is also quite frankly, not always wanted to be, uh, who, who has, uh, I don't even want to say struggled with, but lives with a sometimes flimsy relationship to being alive. Um, huh. I think that it's a series of um, questioning the value of staying here, whatever here is. You know, there's a difference, I think, between, like, I want to be alive and I want to be here. And sometimes the option is, I don't want to be here, and the only way to not be here is to not be alive. You know, I, it's, um, for, for me, at least, it's like a hazy thing. And so, um, but it's kind of like a series of inquiries, like repeated inquiries. And 
I think for a lot of people I, I, I know and love and still or knew and loved and still still love greatly, those inquiries were not returning um, results. And, I, you know, I, I don't think that's a failure of theirs as much as I think that's more often a failure of the world. Mm-hmm. May I ask if music helped you get through your mom's death? I don't know if it did. You know, I think that the, uh, the like, most romantic answer is yes in some ways. Music, if nothing else, builds these really small monuments to people that I can always hold on to. There are songs that operate as monuments to people I've lost. Mm. And so I don't know if that helps necessarily. It does not bring back a person I love. And it actually doesn't even um, refurnish the memory of them in any new way or sharp way. Mm -hmm. Memory is tricky because as I get older, you know, a few years ago I realized I could not remember the sound of my mother's voice anymore. Mm -hmm. My dear friend Tyler, who we lost when I was in my early 20s, I don't remember what his laugh sounds like anymore. And there is no song that can kind of refurnish the sonics of their living, you know, the sounds of their living. But there are songs that can kind of act as this silent film, this song that takes me back to a place where I'm watching a silent film of their life. Mm-hmm. And that, that serves a purpose, surely. I hesitate to say that it's helpful, but it's, not, it's certainly not detrimental to the process. May I ask for a detail on that? Is there a song that is a, a monument, a mental monument to your mom? Yeah, Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody is one. But more prominently... Nina Simone's version of Pirate Jenny. There's a live 1964 version. You people can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors and I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking. It's harrowing and it's haunting. And for some reason, I remember this song so vividly because I remember being on the floor of the living room of our first kind of small apartment while my mother was in the kitchen cooking and humming along to it. There's a scream in the night. I was maybe five or six. I remember running my hands through the carpet and, and watching my mom in the kitchen while the song was playing. And I still, that's like a vivid memory. One of the first memories that I, I have and hold on to. So what happened to you then when you fast forward through adolescence and you're in your 20s and you have these buddies and it goes back to what you said before that a lot of them were making some fatal choices and and choosing to not be here anymore like that's a lot of loss Hanif to have lost your mom and then to lose really good friends by that point in your 20s when when that started happening to you had you worked through the loss of your mom to the point where you were more emotionally fluent to process those losses or did it all just accumulate in you? Well, I'm of a belief that one doesn't move past, or at least in my life, I I don't move past loss. Uh, Grief makes a home, I think, within us if we allow it to. I believe at that point I was learning to be something I know now, something I'm committed to now. I believe that I I should be a, a generous steward to my grief i should make mm-hmm. a home for it within me that is generous and, and has a depth to it if i tend generously to my grief then it then it treats me well in return that means that each time i'm confronted with it 
I have a newer depth of tools to move through it. And understanding that grief is not only tied to death or loss, but the grief of the various heartbreaks that we live with now. When I was in my 20s, I was also, I mean, I was also someone who was struggling with the idea of, of being here and being alive still. And, you know, there, there are points where I feel like it is miraculous that I survive certain eras, but I think that I have had points in my life where I, curiosity has won out. Curiosity has won out over my own nihilistic impulses. You mean curiosity about what could happen next if you stick around? Yeah, I kind of want to see what's on the other side of a of an hour or a day. Uh. I mean, the, the my process now, if I'm in a state of depression or anxiety, uh, both of which I like have lived with for much of my life, I always ask myself in the morning, how good do I feel about being alive today? Thankfully, now, these days, more times than not, the answer is, at the very least, pretty good. Um, some days it's like, very good. Other days it's like, pretty good. But yeah. the thing about it is that there are some days where it's the answer is not very good at all. Yeah. So then it becomes a descending clock. It's no longer, how do I feel about being alive today? It's, how do I feel about being alive this hour? And if mm-hmm. the answer is still not very good, then it's okay. How do I feel about being alive in the next 20 minutes? If the answer is mm-hmm. still not very good, then it gets a little urgent. And it's like, well, what what curiosity can propel me towards the next five minutes? Mm-hmm. And then I'll find something else. Mm-hmm. If I move through the day enough, I will find an accumulation of things that propel me to the next day where the answer might be different and better. Love alone does not equate to survival always. It's not this vague, hovering thing of, well, you're so loved. You know, it requires a bit more. So I guess I'm curious, if your spiritual identity is so tethered to to loss in this way, right? Like, you have a, a spiritual notion about an afterlife because you have lost people and you want to see them again. But does that mean that there's no function for spirituality and the joy and meaning that can bring to a life in the present for you? Is it all a projection of what happens after you die? Um, I think, I think it's, that's the most useful projection for me. Uh-huh. But I also really do find that... Um, you know, I don't find myself, say, like, talking to God. Um, I don't find myself in conversation with God unless I am curious about why something is unfolding the way it has, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do fast every year. You know, I, I do Ramadan every year. And I do that because I love the discipline it requires. I, I think there's a real spiritual discipline there that I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because it's not just not eating and drinking. You're also just supposed to be clear headed and operate in a way that allows you to approach it with a with an openness and a, it's a it's like a holistic approach. And so, you know, there's that, but I I don't really find myself in awe of or eager to have, say, like a conversation with with God that will answer any questions. Which I, I, but I, I think I am someone who operates with belief, though. You know, like I, I believe that um, I will 
at some point perhaps see the people I love again. And I think there's, there's a richness to that belief that um, that holds me up. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about, you know, your day, how your day goes can be t- determined by where grief sits in you. Could you describe what a day looks like when grief is treating you well? Like, Do memories of those who yeah. you've lost, your mom, your friend Tyler, others, are they more present? Like, Walk me through what it looks like when grief is treating you well on a certain day. Well, I think grief t- treats me best when I'm channeling I'm kind of channeling the people I've lost through my through my current living. For example, the best example I can give of this also goes back to music. There are a couple songs that I love that I'm really drawn to, but they're not songs that I think I love. They're songs that I think I'm loving because I know that Tyler would love them. Hmm. And so I am loving them through him, you know? Or there are things I know how to make to cook or bake because I watch my mother do it. Mm-hmm. And so the, and these things are just like inherent to me. Like I just know them. And I think, you know, grief treats us well when we kind of, when these these parts of people that we've gotten to enjoy, um, when they greet us, when they, they come to us and they, they greet us warmly, just repeatedly. And um, that's the real gift, I think, is to say that I am not just one person, I am multiple versions of a person, and some of those versions of myself have been loved immensely by people who were so incredible, and through their loving of me, I have a, a richer texture, and that texture allows me to navigate the world in ways that I am just on my own not equipped to do. And that means that on my best days, I get through the world, I get through um, the challenges of living, navigated gently by a whole host of people who, even without them knowing it, or maybe with, with them knowing it, but I think a lot of times without them knowing it, have created a generous blueprint through which I've learned to maneuver this life well. And um, that is the richest praise I can give anyone's living, is that it echoes repeatedly through my survival. Thank you for that. Hanif, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I so appreciate it. Hanif Abdur-Rakib, his most recent book is called A Little Devil in America. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. Every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. By the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. Donate today at cancer.org. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.